0: My guest on this episode of Living Peace Podcast is David Hoffman. David Hoffman is the founder of Boston Law Collaborative and a lecturer at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on mediation and collaborative law, and is part of the Harvard Negotiation Project. David is the author of three books, including "Bringing Peace into the Room: How the Personal Qualities of the Mediator Impact the Process." of conflict resolution. He's an internationally renowned peace educator, TED speaker, mediator, collaborative lawyer, and a scholar of dispute resolution. You can learn more about David at www.blc.law. David Hoffman, welcome to Living Peace podcast.
1: Thank you. It's good to be here.
0: Thank you. So uh, you are, are probably one of the best uh, known um, peacemakers. You do a lot of teaching and uh, writing about being a peacemaker and also being a lawyer at the same time. Hmm. So I'm wondering if to start, uh, you could share a little bit with us about how you got here, how, how you became peacemaker?
1: So I'm a child of the 60s. I grew up, uh, I was born in 1947. And so in my teenage years, all of the protest and ferment and um, the anti-war movement uh, were all around me in, um, in Baltimore, Maryland, where I grew up. Uh, I was particularly affected by the civil rights movement, Uh, My friends and I marched in picket lines to uh, oppose uh, race discrimination. And uh, at around that same time, the war in Vietnam became the focus of a lot of protest activity uh, also. And I think there was a fundamental tension in the 60s movement, and that tension uh, exists today among progressive uh, political people, and that is the yearning for world peace and also the recognition that there are certain struggles that need to take place in order to achieve justice. And that tension between uh, seeking social justice and seeking a more peaceful world is a very dynamic tension and one that uh, I'm still trying to sort out in my own life.
0: Mm. So, David, how would you define um, a peacemaker? Uh, again, considering this tension between social justice and uh, you know, our, our desire to connect with each other and to connect with each other in a meaningful way, how would you define a peacemaker?
1: So, for me, being a peacemaker is part of my journey of Uh, trying to find what what the Buddhists call right livelihood. And so initially that took me to graduate school to become a teacher. And I thought that that would be a good uh, setting in which to promote social justice and the the work of making the the planet more peaceful. Um, I transitioned into woodworking Uh, because the market for academics wasn't so great in the 1970s, and uh, I loved doing that, and brought to that work uh, a similar uh, interest in how can the workplace become a more uh, collaborative and more peaceful uh, space. And so I incorporated into my little cottage industry, woodworking business, elements of Uh, worker self-management, and consensus, decision-making by consensus, which is a little unusual for for business, but it was very rewarding. After about seven years of being a woodworker, that yearning for right livelihood evolved uh, as I began to realize that I wanted to be more involved in the world than I could be as a a woodworker. Um, I decided to go to law school, and my goal in Uh, uh, deciding to go to law school was very um, straightforward. I wanted to be an advocate for civil rights, civil civil liberties, and for social justice. I knew that it would be hard making a living doing that, and I had a family at the time, still do. Uh, So I chose to go to a law firm, but do a lot of pro bono work, and that was very rewarding, Uh, It was a little bit out of sync with who I am as a person, however, because a steady diet of litigation, even on behalf of righteous causes, uh, led me to think, and it's led many people to think, that litigation is not the most uh, suitable tool for resolving conflict and advancing uh, important goals. There are certain test cases, of course. I mean, the classic Uh, example of that is Brown versus Board of Education. There was no interest on anyone's part in mediating Brown versus Board of Education. And in my career as a lawyer, I handled some cases like not of the level of Brown versus Board of Education, but cases that uh, made uh, precedent, established precedent. Um, So I don't have any uh, misgivings about the value of courts or the value of litigators. We certainly need uh, both. Uh, But what I came to realize, as many lawyers have, is that the vast majority of cases really need a problem-solving, interest-based conversation, particularly one that we engage in, uh, at least to some extent, from the heart and not solely from the head. And that led me uh, to the path of getting training in mediation, arbitration, other kinds of alternative dispute resolution and uh, that has led me to be teaching and writing about uh, those subjects. So I don't know whether there will be other twists and turns on, on the on the path, on the journey, but for now I feel like I'm in a place where my day job also feels like my calling. It feels like what I, um, what feels right it, feel, it feels like right livelihood to be able mm-hmm. to to bring peace into the room uh, through mediation, and even through lawyering, uh, collaborative lawyering creates a, a similar opportunity
0: mm. Mm. and so you know so something that I <laughs> take from from what you said um, and, and something that I also take from your writing, um, being a peacemaker could have something to do with with, uh, the work that we do and how we show up to that work. But it sounds like an important piece of that is also how we are. Um, Mm -hmm. So in other words, uh, some people may find different disciplines more suitable, different careers more suitable, but yet we can show up to woodmaking as peacemakers.
1: Mm -hmm. We
0: can show up to litigation, as, as peacemaking, mm-hmm. um, and really to all areas of life. So do you have any, for, any thoughts, any additional thoughts on that, that peacemaker is more than what we do? It's more than a career choice, it's how we are.
1: Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the book, Bringing Peace into the Room, which I uh, published with Daniel Bowling makes a point uh, similar to what you were just saying, which is that, uh, well, in the book, we talk about three stages of development uh, for mediators, but I think it applies, as you point out, to other folks as well. One is uh, skills. Uh, Second is understanding the theory behind what we're doing. And the third is the personal development that enables us just by the kind of presence that we bring into a room to influence people in a, in a positive healing uh, direction. And um, I, in saying that, I, I want to be clear about something uh, that may not be obvious, which is that peacemakers aren't all cut from the same cloth. People who, in their work as lawyers, mediators, woodworkers, et cetera, uh, have a lot of different styles of how to do that. Um, I took a workshop uh, not too long ago uh, with a a therapist named Mike Elkin, who's a very uh, accomplished uh, psychotherapist. And his manner is not like, you know, someone who is not like a a Buddhist uh, Mm -hmm. monk, let's say, Uh, Mm -hmm. he he is very direct and, Uh but lovingly direct. And mm-hmm. he is a way of bringing peace into the room uh, with uh, just a, a, a different kind of style. And uh, I've learned a lot from Mike and, and really appreciate uh, watching and do what he does. Um, but we all uh, draw from different sources the inspiration that enables us to uh, to, to bring peace into the room and in whatever rooms we we happen to be uh, living and and working in. Um, I also want to say one other thing about uh, the effort to be a peacemaker. Not only um, are there different styles of how to do it, uh, but there are a number of different dimensions to what's going on as we Mm -hmm. do it. I think one of the biggest uh, dimensions has to do with Uh, understanding better the parts of us that are competing for our attention uh, that may be angry or defensive or um, bored or uh, distracted. Uh, We all have these different parts. And, And in order to truly be present for the people we're working with, the task is to Uh, be aware of those parts and ask them to step back, uh, create some space, some heart space, so to speak, for a genuine uh, self-to-self connection with the person or the people we're working with. So there's a lot of self-awareness that's uh, part of what we are trying to do. Uh, The other dimension has to do with Uh, Our awareness of other people's parts and how those parts, whether they're angry parts or depressed parts or um, uh, hyper-rational parts, how they can occlude or or block the uh, kind of um, heart-to-heart energy that we try to open up when we're connecting with people and recognizing that those are parts um, and having compassion that just like we have uh, those parts, so do they. Um, and then the, the other dimension is the uh, skill with which we can help uh, those parts, our own and the other person's parts, relax a little bit. Uh-huh. And um, I wish there were, I mean, there there are clinical texts for, you know, how psychotherapists can accomplish this. But for people Uh who don't have that kind of psychological training, I think uh, the path has been spiritual awareness as as, as an avenue Um, and that's valuable. It's very important Uh, and it's very helpful if the other person also is on a spiritual path. Uh But if the other person Uh isn't on a spiritual path, I think there are techniques in the world of psychology that Mm -hmm. can enable us to uh, help the other person be less defensive and to uh, disengage those protective parts that stand in the way of of, uh, authentic and heartfelt connection. Does that make sense?
0: Yes, yes, And, and I think David, you touched on two things that really, for me personally, have been absolutely key in um, the way I practice mediation as a craft and the way I also show up as a peacemaker. And one thing that you mentioned is space. I find that space is perhaps the most important element of mediation, you know, holding space for ourselves, having that, and then having that space between our story and us. And that allows us to hold space as peacemakers. Um, and then the second piece, um, something that you mentioned and something that you uh, you writing in your book, um, really caused me to re-examine the purpose of mediation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, now, I no longer see the purpose of mediation as settlement, uh, coming to agreement, or even coming to understanding. Mm-hmm. But for me, the purpose of mediation and peacemaking has become expansion.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So if we can come into the room and as, as peacemakers, we can expand somehow, expand our understanding, expand our awareness. Or if any other person in the room can expand where they are, to me, that's a successful, that's a successful experience, something that we can aspire to. So I'm wondering, do you have any comments on that?
1: Yes, I do. Um, I too feel like I'm doing my work as a mediator differently now than I used to. And I'll describe Mm -hmm. uh, that difference in just a moment. Uh, But first I want to go to your point about how in your practice, the goal of mediation isn't problem solving. Mm some kind of uh, higher level of awareness, understanding, expansion, et cetera. And this is very similar to what the uh, transformative mediation movement is Mm -hmm. all about. Empowerment, Mm -hmm. recognition, and Mm -hmm. uh, uh, authors of the promise of mediation, Joe Folger and Robert Mm -hmm. Ruth Bush, say that mediators who are focusing primarily or solely on problem-solving are really missing an opportunity uh, that's mm-hmm. unique to mediation. And the, the, so uh, I guess I, um, I'm i troubled when mm-hmm. uh, people say that there's a right way to, to mediate. Right. And right. the I'm troubled by that is that people come with different goals. And mm-hmm. part of our skill as mediators is to figure out is this a process that can be useful in helping them achieve their goals? Uh, The vast, vast majority, I mean, virtually all of the people who come to me for mediation are coming because they have a conflict that needs to be Uh resolved. Uh Um, Sometimes, occasionally, I do family, commercial, employment, I do all kinds of uh, uh, cases, and and I like the variety. Uh, Occasionally, I've had uh, couples married couples come not because they needed an amicable divorce but because they wanted to mediate the terms of their marriage mm-hmm. and uh, because there were conflicts and so the tools of expansion which is your term or empowerment and recognition which is the mm-hmm. term the terms used but in transformative mediation i think of all of those concepts as extremely valuable mm-hmm. um, and uh, important uh, tools, uh, and at the same time, I see my goal. My not my goal exactly. It's my, my role. It's my my job. Uh-huh. I've been hired to help people resolve a specific conflict. Now, if they can do it amicably, if they can do it in a way that is uh, emotionally or even spiritually enriching, transformative, uh-huh. to use the uh, Bush Folger term. Uh-huh. That's terrific. Uh, those are the golden moments for mediators when people not only shake hands but give each other a hug and really reconnect in some way. And uh, mediators, you know you' I'm sure you've experienced this too. it's It's really mm-hmm. deeply energizing, deeply satisfying to accomplish that. But there are an awful lot of cases that simply result in settlements. and mm-hmm. And I think that's fine. Uh, mm-hmm. i I don't judge that. Um, and uh, so as to how I do it, let me turn back to that for a moment. So when I was trained as a mediator, uh, I think the role that I internalized was that, um, you know, like in in a, in a courtroom, you have two advocates and you have a judge and jury, and they're the, the, mm-hmm. the deciders. Uh, in mediation, you have uh, often two parties And the mediator is there to advocate for or explore the space where the parties could meet, to be an advocate for settlement. And so when one side says, we think we're gonna win, the mediator's role in my old view was to raise questions, ask reality testing questions, kind of uh, uh, see how confident they really were and whether their confidence was realistic. And then I'd go to the other side and do the same thing. And what I found was over the years that that way of thinking about my role had a certain mm-hmm. oppositional quality. I was mm-hmm. trying to persuade them of something. And the, the harder I tried to persuade them, the, mm-hmm. uh, the harder they would push back. And the question, it became a, a struggle of will, which didn't feel like the, the best way to mediate. And... Mm-hmm. So I had this this moment in one of my mediations uh, where the light went on, so to speak, and I saw a different way of doing it. I was sitting with a woman who was a fairly senior uh, manager uh, in a a large corporation, and she had been uh, let go. She had been laid off. The company Mm -hmm. said they eliminated her position, and she said, well, what they really did was they just created a new position, and hired a man. And so Uh she was asserting sex discrimination. And she had a case which uh, appeared to be uh, quite strong because the company offered a lot of money uh, to settle it. That's usually a pretty good indication Uh that they feel they have some exposure. And uh, we got to the end of the day and this woman who was the primary breadwinner in her family and who was very concerned about how the litigation could take a couple of years or more with with no certainty as to result um, we had reached the end of the road and the company had offered two hundred and fifty thousand dollars which for her was you know significant uh, sum uh-huh. would enable her to make her mortgage payments and keep her family going uh, for uh-huh. for quite a while while she looked for her next gig but I could see her really struggling, really wrestling, uh, because she believed so fervently that she had been discriminated against, Mm -hmm. uh, felt unfair. She had an excellent lawyer. And I sat with her lawyer and with her and we talked. And I said, you know, I think there's a part of you that really wants to go the distance on this because that part of you cares passionately about justice. And that part of you is very worried that if you settle this case, you're giving up on an important mm-hmm. cause. And uh, she said, yes, that's, that's true. And uh, I said, and I sense that there's another part of you that is trying to be very practical about the risks of going to trial and the need to support your family. Mm-hmm. And is very concerned that fighting the good fight will uh, create problems. Uh-huh. uh serious problems uh, for you uh, at home. And, uh, I, and she said, yes, there's de- you know, definitely a part of me that, that is very concerned about that. So I said, you know, I think that all of us have a mediator inside, a, a wise, calm, centered part of us that can listen to these two parts that are in conflict and help the whole system come to a wise decision uh-huh. about, about the path that is uh, makes sense here. And uh, I wonder if you can feel that mediator inside you. Uh-huh. And she said, uh, yes. I, uh, and I said, I, I know I need to settle this and move on. And it was that moment of reflection when she sat in silence with her intermediator, mm-hmm. letting that work go on inside, that really uh, both moved me and inspired me. It was moving because I could see that she was making a an empowered decision. She was making a mm-hmm. decision where she didn't feel like She was being pushed around by the mediator or her lawyer or anybody else. She really kind Mm -hmm. of took it all in and she was at at peace with her her decision. And so that was really quite touching. For me, what it meant was that I could step out of the role of Mm -hmm. being an advocate for one path or the other path, but Mm -hmm. just help illuminate both paths and that felt really wonderful. Uh, it felt more in alignment with my personal, emotional, spiritual uh, values uh, than simply being, in a way, kind of a lawyer advocating for a certain outcome, right? Uh-huh, the outcome uh-huh. of settlement as opposed to the outcome of you know victory in court. Um, and so I've begun to practice more in that way. Um, And now, Uh Bruce Bush and Joe Folger, you might say, well, that's exactly what we're talking about, empowering people. And Uh and I agree. Uh, I I see it as a uh, a very deep kind of empowerment, in the sense that people Uh are getting in touch with their highest and best selves, Uh and uh, acknowledging all their parts, the parts that are angry, the parts that are wanting to resolve things. Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm. and David it sounds when we as mediators are able to hold space for a person who's going through allow space for that person uh, to go through that deeply transformative process by whatever name and technique and and, and way we get there however we call it how what sort of practices can we as mediators, as peacemakers do to create that space within ourselves to show up in that way? I don't know if it's a clear question.
1: Yes, no, it is. So for me, um, there are a number of practices that are important. Um, uh, One is um, uh, psychotherapy getting a better sense of, uh, uh, of who I am, uh, okay. what makes me tick. And I've, have, I've been blessed to have a, a relationship with a wonderful psychotherapist over the years. I, I started seeing her when one of my kids was going through a very hard time and I was just struggling to maintain yeah. my uh, composure and ability to you know, not just fall apart with sadness and worry. And this therapist helped me a lot. And I've continued to see her uh, both to explore the dimension within and also as kind of a coach, someone who has a more objective view of some of the things that I find myself uh, needing to decide as I manage my, my journey. Um, so I highly recommend that. And you know, psychotherapy has been stigmatized in our society, unfortunately, quite a bit. Uh, particularly for lawyers uh, and, and mm-hmm. other professionals, I think acknowledging that psychotherapy can be useful is becoming a little uh, less uncommon, but still um, it's not sort of fully accepted. Everyone thinks it's fine to see a medical doctor to attend mm-hmm. to our physical health, but the idea that we would want someone to uh, see on a regular basis about our psychological well being is not uh, uh, considered uh, kind of r- routine at all. So that's one thing. Second thing is contemplative practice, making times for meditation or yoga or other kinds of uh, time when we go within and mm-hmm. become uh, more, more peaceful. Um, third, I think we're remiss if we don't make some time for fun. And um, I think that that's a, part of be, being whole and, and, and feeling uh, uh, healthy and integrated and authentic. And finally, for me, um, uh, being in love has been, you know, a deeply enriching part of my life. I was blessed uh, to be married to uh, Beth Andrews for 34 years. She uh, died four years ago from, from lung cancer. And it was, um, the saddest thing I've ever experienced. I've mm. lost my parents. I've lost other people in my life who were important to me, but I have not had anything as deeply wrenching as uh, as losing Beth. Um, but I've reopened my heart and I've uh, recently remarried. And for me, that is a hugely important channel of peace and, and well-being. Um, mm. That feeling of interpersonal connection. Now, I, I should also say that I feel a very strong sense of interpersonal connection in my workplace, which is a very collaboratively oriented workplace. We call ourselves Boston Law Collaborative uh, mm-hmm. intentionally, not just because of collaborative law, but because of our goal of uh, managing the firm collaboratively. And I live in a co housing community in the mm-hmm. suburbs of Boston, uh, 27 households. Uh, collectively managing a, a, a lovely space. We all have our own homes it's a little, and we have a common house. So it's a little bit uh, like a cross between a commune and a condominium. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a wonderful way to live. So I feel blessed. I have sources of connection at home, in my marriage, in my workplace, and also in my uh, the neighborhood that we uh, created together. It's called New View co-housing if any of your listeners are interested in co-housing just type co-housing into your browser and you'll find out a lot of cool things about it
0: Mm, i will definitely look it up okay Uh, something that uh, i also want to talk to you about david i've heard you speak many times um, and i notice how vulnerable you can be when you're speaking raw vulnerable how moved Mm. Um, you can appear, um, and how moved you are by the stories uh, you share of your clients,
1: Mm.
0: um, the stories that you share of your family. Mm. And so I'm wondering, um, what role do you see vulnerability Mm. playing in showing up as peace, showing up as a peacemaker to whatever is the situation, whatever, whatever life calls on us? Yeah, well,
1: as uh, I'm sure you know, Brene Brown has uh, written Mm -hmm. and spoken very eloquently on this uh, subject of vulnerability. Um, And my own uh, view about it is that the avenue to connecting with other people Mm -hmm. is to recognize those defensive and protective parts of our uh, being uh, stand in the way of, of connection. And so by uh, asking those kinds of parts to step away, what's left are some very vulnerable parts. Uh, mm-hmm. And um, I, uh, you know, so some people are, are uh, naturally more comfortable with their tears uh, mm-hmm. than others. And mm-hmm. I have to say that um, for many years, decades even, I was not comfortable with my tears at all. I was embarrassed about them. And at some point, I, I, I don't recall exactly what led to this change, but I gradually became more comfortable with them and accepting that that's just kind of how I roll. I, I Actually, as I think about it, I, th- I think that it was around the time that my kids started to have their bar and bat mitzvahs. Mm. And um, because as a parent, if you have a child having a bar or bat mitzvah, you, the child gives a talk and uh, usually the parents say something. And, oh my gosh, I just fell apart. I just was <laughs> so tearful. I mean, I managed to say a few things too, but um, the tears were just uh, flowing. I think my then 13-year-old kids were probably... Uh, a little bit mortified (laughs) by that. Um, But they also know that's kind of how dad is. And um, I read a a book uh, called Tears, uh, written by a psychologist. And I'm trying to remember uh, uh, the psychologist. Anyway, the psychologist uh, wrote a whole book about it and uh, how uh, crying is stigmatized in our society mm-hmm. along with psychotherapy and some other things. And uh, th- th- in this book, the psychologist told the story of a, um, a young doctor in training. I think he, um, he was a resident and he was sitting at the bedside of a woman who was dying and uh, counseling her and and comforting her. And she was crying and, and he was crying and the um uh, senior physician on that service came in and saw what was going on and was very angry and and said to the this uh, uh, resident said what the hell is going on here you know uh, if if you want to get you know emotional like this you should go into nursing and um, and you know which spoke volumes about the way the practice of medicine is. Uh, conceived of as an orientation where you aren't in empathic, vulnerable connection with your patients, that the hallmark of being a good doctor is that you can look at this patient of yours who's dying and not be moved by yeah. her sadness. Yeah. And, and the same thing is true in law. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the same norm applies Uh, to quote, think like a lawyer, which is the main curriculum of law school. To think like a lawyer means to look at a situation that might be very sad or even seem unjust, but recognize that we have to apply the law. First-year law students are given texts that are full of accident cases in which horrible things have happened to people, and yet their case cannot proceed in court because they missed the statute of limitations by a day. Well, you know, why should one day matter, you know, but if one day doesn't matter, then what about two or five or 10 or a thousand days, you know? Uh, And so we have to become desensitized to the injustice that sometimes results from a rigid application of the rule of law. And Unfortunately, I think uh, lawyers get trained to view their vulnerability and their emotions as Mm -hmm. suspect. Mm -hmm. Um, So for mediators, uh, there's this great saying I heard from a a woman who was both a mediator and a lawyer. She said that for her, uh, going to law school was an experience in which her uh, left brain uh, circled her right brain and ate it <laughs> and, and that what she was trying to accomplish as a mediator was to recover the right brain function that got gobbled up in law school. And I think that's a very apt and amusing
0: uh, uh, way of uh, mm. thinking about it. Mm. And I think what I, what I discovered even in, in, in my own work and, and the courses that I teach um, when we are able ourselves as peacemakers, as mediators, as lawyers, whatever is the particular role we're playing, when we're ourselves able to connect with what's inside us, whatever are the pieces that we're carrying and realize that if we carry pieces inside us, then we can bring peace.
1: Yeah.
0: Because if we don't have that awareness, um, I think it becomes very, very difficult. And then I've seen, as I'm sure you have uh, lawyers and others become very uncomfortable when someone displays some sort of emotion uh, and they try to, to caucus and they try to immediately move to another direction and don't really give space, um, space to, to someone's crying, to someone feeling sad, to someone feeling very yeah. angry. Yeah,
1: and I think when we encounter people who are very angry, um, a number of things, happen, for me anyway, Um, one is they are telling a very distorted view of Mm -hmm. their situation and so there's a part of me that is editing what they're saying and trying to discount and say well that can't possibly be completely Mm -hmm. true the way they're describing Mm -hmm. it. So there's a skeptic in me that is uh, kind of filtering what I'm hearing And, and that's not very helpful. And then there's another part of me that is getting upset with them because mm-hmm. the more dug in and angry they get, the more positional they get, the harder it's going to be for me to do my job, mm-hmm. which, you know, help the parties uh, reach a resolution. And uh, so those two, the combination of those two reactions uh, mm-hmm. is going to make it very difficult for me to bring forth that, the peaceful uh, uh-huh. part of me. Um, so I have to be aware of those parts and ask them to step back and to, add, to get curious, to get compassionate uh-huh. and curious and ask myself, why is this person so angry? You know, uh-huh. what is the vulnerable part of this person that's being protected by these angry gladiators? Uh-huh. And what's the fear? What's the sadness? What's the wound? Uh that this person is carrying around. And when I can open myself up to that curiosity and compassion, I have a better chance of working with that person rather than resisting what they're resisting or doubting uh, Uh what they're telling me. Uh There's one one other aspect of uh, peacemaking that I want to um, address before we get done, because I I know we're getting close to the Uh end of our time. Uh And that is, the um, uh, important goal of social justice, Mm -hmm. not only outside in the world that we all inhabit, but within our own spheres, within our communities, within our profession, uh, within our uh, peacemaking work. If one looks around at the ranks of mediators in the United States, uh, we do not see the representation of people of all kinds mm-hmm. that exist in our society. And I think we have to ask ourselves, how can we make our community of peacemakers more accurately reflect the communities in which mm-hmm. we work? How are we going to serve uh, all of the communities uh, of our society? if we don't have peacemakers that are drawn from uh, communities of all kinds. And this has to do with uh, race, with uh, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, religion, disability, sexual orientation, gender identity. There's a whole range of dimensions in which we mediators are not representative And uh, we need to be opening the doors and uh, welcoming uh, uh, people of all kinds and beyond opening the doors and being welcoming is to be out there uh, in outreach to underserved communities, to create more peacemaking in all corners of our society. Um, And then there's the uh, the work that we do for social justice that goes beyond our day job. Uh, right now, as you and I speak, there's an important midterm election that's in the offing. There are struggles over, there was a recent struggle, of course, over the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Um, these are struggles which bring to the fore many kinds of injustice in our society uh, that need to be rectified. And so uh, I'm reminded of a folk song uh, written by a guy named Charlie King. And the, uh, I won't try to sing it for you, uh, <laughs> but, but the lyrics of the, uh, the chorus uh, go like this. He said, um, our life is more than our work and our work is more than our job. And so while I try to bring the values of peacemaking uh, into my work uh, as a mediator, uh, and, uh, which is my job. Uh, I try to bring it into my life at home and in my community. Um, I think all of us uh, need to take seriously what are our responsibilities for social justice in those areas that lie outside our job, outside our uh, immediate uh, uh, communities in the larger world.
0: Mm-hmm. But I don't think I can add anything to that. Uh, it seems like that's a perfect, perfect place um, for us for us to pause. Um, certainly a lot to ponder uh, after, after our conversation. Uh, David Hoffman, I'm so, so grateful for joining us uh, on the Living Peace uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Good to talk with you. So long. Thank you.